Good morning, folks. Hey, glad you all are here. Why don't you uh, find your way to your seats? And uh, this morning, we're going to do something a little different. You guys up for doing something a little different? Well, we're going to do it anyway. So we're going to do our sermon and our service in three parts. Uh, and so oftentimes in the scriptures, we see this pattern that there is a, a revelation that God gives to his people, and then there is a response of reverence or worship. You could put it this way. A lot of times there is a, uh, uh, the word of God comes to his people, and then they respond with the worship of God. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to do our sermon in three parts, examining our new purity in practice. And then with each sermon section, I'm going to ask you to stand, and our worship team is going to come, and we're going to respond in song. And so uh, a little bit of up-down this morning, but we're going to keep you away and uh, get, get some leg exercises done along the way. So if you have your Bibles, grab them at this point in time. And if you don't, there are plenty of Bibles scattered in the pew backs in front of you. Let's turn to the Gospel of John, if you will, John chapter 10. The Gospel of John, John chapter 10, as we begin to look at the new purity in practice. John chapter 10. If you don't have your own Bible or can't grab a Bible in front of you, you should be able to follow along in the screen, uh, on the screen behind me. So as you're turning to John 10, would you uh, pray with me as we get things started this morning? Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word and that our hearts would be inflamed. And because we have heard from you, that we would respond to you rightfully in worship and adoration and praise. For you are altogether glorious, altogether holy, altogether good, altogether just and faithful and true. And I pray that you would speak to us this morning, in particular, as we examine the practical ramifications and applications of the forgiveness of sins that those of us who are in Christ have experienced. We ask it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Well, last week we began to explore the first major provision of the new covenant. We've called it our new purity. We saw it was provided for us in Colossians chapter 2, and we saw how to procure it in Romans chapter 4. Well, today we're going to take a look at our new purity in practice, answering and answering, uh, and asking and answering, hopefully, this question. What practical daily difference does the forgiveness of our sins received as a gift through personal faith in Jesus matter? What does it matter, practically speaking? Well, on that point, uh, the Christian author John Stott, the Anglican priest, influential evangelical author, he answers that question for us and he says this. He says, the cross, the cross revolutionizes our attitudes to God to ourselves, to other, and to other people, both inside and outside the Christian fellowship. And so in our sermon today, what I want to do is sort of excavate John Stott's penetrating observation that the cross, the forgiveness of sins, that if we are in Christ we have received, that it affects, number one, our relationship to God. It affects, number two, our relationship to ourselves. And number three, it affects our relationship to other people. And so I'd like to begin in part one, our new purity and our relationship with God. Into that, we will turn to John chapter 10, starting in verse 22. Now, when the uh, Golden Gate Bridge, maybe you've heard of it, this famous bridge over in San Francisco, when it was being built, uh, as the story goes, it, it initially, there were no safety nets that were used during the initial stages of construction. And so if you can imagine what it must have been like for a worker to stand, oh, like that, up on top of this massive uh, uh, construction, right, this bridge, uh, without anything underneath. As a result... 
history tells us that 23 people fell while working on the bridge to their deaths in the cold bay waters below. Well, as you would figure, this sort of prompted a large safety net that was made and put in place about halfway through the construction of the bridge. Now, friends, what do you think would be the result on the productivity of the workers knowing that there was this safety net underneath? Well, we are told that only 10 more people fell, and of course they were caught, so they were safe. But the records indicate that the the work rate, the productivity rate, if you will, increased by a whopping 25%. I don't know about you, but I would feel much better working with a net underneath me. Of course, once the men were assured that their safety, well, would be preserved, they pursued the project with greater freedom and with greater effectiveness. Brothers and sisters, may I suggest to us that this is the, the same impact that the doctrine of the eternal security of the Christian is to have on the believer. That is, that we too will pursue holiness, that we too will pursue sacrificial servanthood and, and selfless love and, and disciple-making more freely and more joyfully and more tenaciously when beneath our feet, extending from eternity past to eternity future, is the promise, the security of eternal life. Friends, as we look at this doctrine, this idea of the eternal security of the believer, we could go to many, many scriptures, but I'd like to focus on just one. And I hope you have your Bibles open to John chapter 10 as we see the words of Jesus starting in verse 22. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, And I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Well, the first thing that I want us to note from this uh, short reading of the life of, of Jesus is that this is one place where Jesus clearly claims to be Israel's Messiah. And not only does he clearly claim to be Israel's Messiah, but notice what he says in verse 30. I and the Father are one. Very clearly here, Jesus claims to be God incarnate. This is a clear indication of his divinity. And so if you ever have a conversation with someone who says something like, you know, Jesus never actually claimed to be God. Friends, what passage should you take them to? John chapter 10. And the reason we know that Jesus claimed to be God, he says, I and the Father are one. The reason we know that he's claiming this, well, if you keep reading in the Gospel of John, we see that the religious leaders in verse 33 prepare to stone him. They are prepared to kill him. And Jesus essentially says, for what good deed are you, are you stoning me for? 
And they essentially say, because you have made yourself equal to God. They clearly understood what Jesus was claiming here. So as an aside, here in this passage, we have this wonderful declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, let's take a look again at verse 26. At verse 26. There Jesus describes his followers, true believers in Christ, as his sheep. He calls them his sheep. They are the ones who believe in him. He says they are the ones who hear his voice. That they are the ones who are known by him. And they follow him. They believe in him. Now notice in verse 28. Well, we'll start in verse 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Now focus in on verse 28. What is it that Jesus is said to give these true sheep of his? He says, and I give eternal life to them. Present tense. I give them eternal life. Friends, for the Christian, eternal life is a present reality as well as a future destiny. And so in the present tense, he says, I am going to give my sheep, I give them eternal life. Now, let me ask you a quick question. Does, is, do you think Jesus is in, the, is in the habit of giving his disciples something and then taking it away? Is that something that Jesus would do? I don't believe so. Very clearly, he says, I give to my sheep eternal life. And then what he does is he gives a vigorous assurance of that eternal life to those who place their faith in him. Verse 28, and I give eternal life to them. And then number one, notice, he says, and they will, what's the word, church? Never. And they will never perish Friends, guess what the word uh, here, never, in the original language, Greek, guess what it means? It means never, right? It means never. In fact, in the Greek, in actuality, this is written in the most emphatic way possible with, with a, a double negative. It's as if Jesus is saying, by no means will this certainly ever happen. Friends, Jesus wants it to be uh, abundantly clear that those whom he gives eternal life to in the present, in the future, what will never happen to them? They will never perish eternally. Not only that, but then notice, he, he continues to give more assurance. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And, he continues, no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Here Jesus makes it clear that no person, no power, no entity will ever be able to take away a sheep from the good and strong and powerful hands of our chief shepherd. And so notice the image. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. And I have them, what? In my hand. Well, that would be sufficient. But Jesus continues. Notice verse 29. He says, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And so, friends, who is it that gives the true believer in Christ, the, this, this, this sheep, who is it that hands the sheep over to Jesus? In a, in a sense, who is it that puts that person into Jesus' hand? Well, it's, it's God the Father, right? God the Father is the one who does that. He has given the sheep to Jesus, and he is what? He is greater than all. And then Jesus makes this astounding statement. He says, and no one is able to snatch them out of whose hand? Out of my Father's hand. 
Do you see the image? Do you see the image of the security of the believer? That on the, on the, on the one hand, we are in Jesus' hand, right? But, but on the other hand, God the Father has his hand where? On the other side of the Christian. In fact, the, the Christian author, uh, author Pink, puts it this way. He says, the hand of Christ is beneath us, and the hand of the Father is above us. He says, thus, we are secured between the clasped hands of omnipotence. What a wonderful image. If Jesus wanted to, de- to describe the security of his sheep any stronger, I don't think he could, right? This is a wonderful image, and it's the first practical implications of the forgiveness of sins. Friends, if you are a sheep, if Jesus is your chief shepherd, there are some marvelous promises. You have eternal life. You will never perish. No one or no thing could take you out of the loving grasp of the Son of God and God the Father. And so with that in mind, we're going to transition. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask our worship team to come forward. And we're going to sing a song uh, reminding ourselves of this wonderful assurance that we have. So let's pray, and then we'll respond in song. Father, what a wonderful picture that you have given us in the words of your Son that he has the, the true believer in, in, in his hand and that you are holding us in the other. What a wonderful picture and, and promise that we will never perish and that we have both now and forever this security of eternal life. And I pray, Father, for my brothers and sisters who are in Christ here that they would see this wonderful security net beneath them and that they would go about making disciples and living uh, in, in holiness and in godliness with that, uh, that, that security underneath them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Let's stand and sing. Folks, as you're having a seat, we're going to transition into the second practical implication of our new purity. And it's found in the book of Hebrews. So if you have your New Testament open, why don't you flip to the right until you find the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, to be specific as we take a look at the second practical application and ramification. We've seen that the new purity has an impact on how we relate to God. Not only that, but secondly, we'll see that our new purity has uh, an impact on our relationship to ourselves. And we'll see that in Hebrews chapter 10. Specifically, we'll be looking at verse 22, Hebrews chapter 10, looking at verse 22. So I trust that you're there or close to it. The story is told of a gentleman by the name of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. You can see a picture of them, I think. There he is uh, on the screen behind me. Now, you may know this name if you are a fan of the old Sherlock Holmes books because, well, he is the author of the Sherlock Holmes uh, series and books. And the story is told of one time, uh, history tells us that he was sort of a jokester, sort of a a practical uh, joke player. And so he decided to, to, to play a practical joke on 12 of his closest friends. And so one day he sent an anonymous telegram to each of these 12 friends that uh, read very simply, flee the country at once, all has been discovered. Flee the country at once, all has been discovered. And what do you think the response of his 12 friends was? Well, as the story goes, they all promptly left the country. In fact, within 24 hours, all of them had fled England in fear of what the discovery of their sins and misdeeds 
might mean. And I don't know what kind of a friend that is who does that sort of thing. Uh, it wouldn't be my friend for long. However, it is fascinating that all 12 of his friends at this anonymous letter leave promptly. All has been discovered. Apparently, they feared that there was something to be exposed, something to be discovered. I think the truth is that we all know what it's like to some degree or another to live with nagging guilt, to live with shame and remorse over things we've done in the past or things we're doing in the present. Friends, we are assaulted both from within and from without. And so the question is, what do we do when we are assaulted in such a way with the the memory of things that we have said, the memory of things that we have done, things that we know are displeasing to God, things that we know uh, have brought guilt and, and shame into our lives. How do we respond to that? What do we do with it? I would suggest there's only one way to deal with that, and it's found in the, the new covenant provision of our new purity. And so to see this, let's turn now to Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll sort of start to look at the text in verse 19. Now, it's only fitting that we turn once again to Hebrews chapter 10, because I am sure that each and every one of you recall that only a few weeks ago, we had an entire sermon on Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Now, I'm not going to give you a pop quiz or anything like that, but I'm sure you took meticulous notes and that you you remember every single detail from that sermon. But just in case you didn't, let me just sort of uh, summarize it for you. There in chapter 10, the author of Hebrews is... uh, is sort of crescendoing with his argument. He has been arguing for the superiority of Jesus in the new covenant to the law in the old covenant. And he he has demonstrated that Jesus is superior to the angels, that he's superior to Moses, that he's superior to Aaron, that he is the great high priest, and that, that the sacrifice that Christ himself offers is far and away greater than the sacrifices of the old covenant. And so his argument crescendos in chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. And so we have this high point in the book that Christ and his sacrifice is supreme and the new covenant is superior. Well, from verses 1 through 18, what we see starting in verse 19 is the author of Hebrews then gives three application points. Three exhortations, three applications based on that supremacy. In fact, if you want to look, you can see the first is found in verse 22. Each of them begins with this admonition to let us blank. Verse 22, he says, let us draw near to God. In verse 23, he says, let us hold fast to our confession. And then in verse 24, he says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. Friends, in other words, in this applicational section in Hebrews chapter 10, we see that our new purity, our new purity gives us obligations. First of all, there is an obligation towards God. Because Christ's sacrifice is superior, what should we do? Well, let us draw near to God. We also have application towards our own faith, right? Verse 23, because Christ's sacrifice is superior, let us hold fast to our confession of faith. And there is an application towards our brothers and sisters, right? Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. What I'd like to do is focus on the first application found in verse 22, for it it speaks to the the, uh, application of our new purity. Verse 22 
the author says, let us draw near with a, a sincere heart in the full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so this first exhortation, this first admonition begins with an exhortation. Hey, because Christ's sacrifice is sufficient, because we have forgiveness of sins, what should we do? Well, draw near to God. Draw near to God. Well, how? Let us draw near, the author says, number one, with a sincere heart. That is, when we draw near to God, we're, we're doing it with the right motives. Well, how, how else are we to draw near to God? Let us draw, draw near with a sincere heart. Notice what he says next. In full assurance of faith. Meaning that we can now draw near to God without any doubt as to whether or not access to God will be gained. It will be because Christ's sacrifice has allowed it to be so. So there's the exhortation, draw near to God. How should we draw near to God? We'll do so sincerely with a sincere heart and in full assurance of faith. But next, in the next couple of phrases, having our hearts sprinkled clean with an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, the next couple of phrases tells us why we can do that. If we've seen how we can do it, next we see why we can do it. Number one, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Both of these phrases harken back, I think, to the Old Testament. They are Old Testament images. In the Old Testament, we see that the, the priest or the sacrifice itself or the person who is offering the sacrifice would often be sprinkled either with blood or with water in order to symbolize cleansing and atonement. And so the author here is picking up on this Old Testament image, if you will. And he's saying that, that Christ's sacrifice could do that better than the Old Covenant sacrifices ever could. And he points us to the fact that Jesus' sacrifice purifies us both internally and externally. Number one, he, he purifies us internally. Notice what, he, what it says. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from a what? From an evil conscience. Friends, the, the, the sacrifice of Christ, this new purity, the forgiveness of sins, allows our consciences, our evil consciences, to be sprinkled Clean. Friends, the, the great German reformer Martin Luther, he, he said it well when he said this. He said, For there is no comfort of, the, of consciences so firm and secure as this passive righteousness, as this passive righteousness is. And so, friends, where do we go when our conscience is bothering us? Where do we go when we are accused from within and from without? How, how do we get past this. Well, we must again and again go to the cross of Christ. We must again and again go to Christ's sacrifice and the fact that we have our consciences sprinkled clean. Martin Luther knew it well, but he wasn't the only one who knew it well. He wasn't the only Christian. Uh, there have been Christians before and after him who knew that truth as well. And I want to share a brief story of a man by the name of William Cooper. William Cooper. He was born in the year of 1731. 
and he died in the year 1800. He was uh, a man who lived in England during that time, and he's most well known for writing a hymn, which we're going to sing here in a moment, called There Is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Maybe you're familiar with it. If you're not, you're about to become familiar with it. There is a fountain filled with blood. He was uh, a genius. He was extremely intelligent. Uh, his, his gifting was really poetry, uh, as you can see there behind me. He wrote uh, much, many, many poems. But his story is fascinating. Not only is he well known for writing this particular hymn, but probably what most Christians who might be familiar with the name don't know about him is that he struggled with depression, uh, pretty much all of his life with anxiety and fear, and that he was plagued uh, with uh, suicide attempts for essentially all of his adult life. In fact, as the story goes, that his repeated attempts to take his own life eventually landed him, well, what was then called an insane asylum, in particular St. Albans insane asylum there in England. And he was fortunate. God's providential hand was upon him because there was a doctor there who oversaw the patients in this insane asylum. And his, this doctor was a, was a Christian. He was an evangelical. And so through his uh, conversations with Cooper, uh, Dr. Nathaniel Cotton led Cooper to faith in Christ. And so he became a Christian. Uh, in God's providence, when he was let go uh, out of the insane asylum, he wanted to find a local church. And so he found a local church that uh, was a great local church. In fact, there was a, a pastor there uh, who, whose name you might have known. There was a pastor there by the name of John Newton. Does that name ring a bell? John Newton. You might know him as the former slave trader who turned pastor who wrote probably the most popular song in, in English Christianity. You know what that is? Amazing grace, right? That John Newton, he was pastoring uh, at this local church, and William Cooper became his parishioner. And so they had many conversations, and he helped William Cooper grow in his faith. In fact, they decided to write a hymn book together. And so the hymn book that first contained Amazing Grace also contained There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Now, despite finding Jesus and a great church, William Cooper, well, he still struggled. He still struggled emotionally uh, for the rest of his adult life. There were more suicide attempts yet to come. But all the while, he, he maintained his faith in Jesus. All the while, he fought to find joy in Jesus. Now, let me just ask you a question. Do you think that a man who has had such an experience like William Cooper's do you think that he would understand, that he would know something about the struggle with guilt and shame? I think that he probably would. And that's why I think he wrote what he did in the opening line of his hymn, which I think has echoes of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. That first line goes like this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to respond in worship once again. So would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for men like William Cooper, who has fought the fight of a, of a guilty conscience. And Father, we all understand this struggle. 
And I'm so grateful that for those of us who are in Christ, when that sin, when that moment, when we hear the accusation of, of our accuser, uh, Satan, the, the accuser of the brethren, when, when we are poked and prodded with the declaration of our sins, that we can run, run time and time again to this righteousness that is gifted to us in Christ and that we can be assured that our, our, our consciences have been cleansed with the blood of Christ. Help us to rejoice in that, we pray in Jesus' name. Well, we're going to wrap up with the third implication of our new purity and practice, and that is uh, our new purity in relationship to other people. And so we've seen from John chapter 10 how our new purity uh, uh, impacts our relationship with God. We've seen in Hebrews chapter 10 how our new purity impacts our relationship with ourself. And then third, in Matthew chapter 18, in Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to see how our new purity affects our relationship with other people. In fact, we're going to do it in reverse order. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And then if you want to earmark Matthew chapter 18, we'll close there. So we'll turn backwards in our New Testament just a bit to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 18. Finally, As John Stott has suggested, our new purity impacts our relationship to God and to others, but also it impacts our relationship with other people. In fact, I think there are really many, many ways uh, in which this is true, but I want to focus on one, I think, overarching theme that we see in the New Testament, how our new purity, the forgiveness of sins, how that should affect the way that we relate to other people, and that is found in the forgiveness of other people's sins against us. The forgiveness that we not only receive from God, but the forgiveness that we offer to other people. And so Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, I think we see the principle, the principle stated clearly. And then in Matthew chapter 18, we'll see the parable or sort of the the story to illustrate the principle. So Ephesians chapter 4, Starting in verse 32, likens our forgiveness from God, links, excuse me, our forgiveness from God and our forgiveness of others. So let's read the verse, and then we'll give it some context, and then we'll focus back again on verse 32. Paul concludes the chapter in chapter 4 by saying this to the church at Ephesus and to us. He says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And so we see the principle at work clearly stated. This is, uh, this is the capstone, if you will, of chapter 4. It's the culmination of Paul's argument uh, in chapter 4 as really the entire chapter, the entirety of chapter 4 is all about how Christians in the local church are to relate to one another. How are we supposed to relate to one another in the local church? As Paul uh, transitions from, from emphasizing doctrine in chapters 1, 2, and 3 to duty in chapters 4, 5, and 6. From belief, if you will, chapters 1, 2, and 3 to behavior, chapters 4, 5, and 6. And he begins by saying, Ephesians, this is how you are to relate to one another. So take a look in chapter 4 if you have your Bibles open. Take a look, for instance, in verse 3. In verse 3, he commands them and us to, to be diligent 
to preserve the unity of the Spirit. In other words, because we are, as Christians, we are in uh, Christ, we also have been given the same Holy Spirit, and that there is a unity uh, within the body, it's the unity of the Spirit, that we are to be diligent, relationally, to preserve. And so from the very outset, this is relational language. Be diligent, preserve the unity of the Holy Spirit. Next, in verses 4 through 16, he talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and how every a Christian that has been born again is, is given uh, a spiritual gift or a multiplicity of spiritual gifts. And he says that these spiritual gifts, and I quote Paul here, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. In other words, he says, Christians, you've been gifted, and those gifts are to be used within the context of the local church to build up your brothers and sisters in Christ. Next, verses 17 through 24, he reminds them not to behave as they and we once did before we were saved. He says that we are to walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk. In other words, you're not who you used to be, so don't act the way you used to act. In verses 25 through 30, there are all sorts of commands about how we are to relate to one another and how we are not to relate to one another. So just take a look briefly. In verse 25, Paul says, don't lie to one another. In other words, in your relationships with one another, don't lie, but be truthful. Verses 26 through 27, he says, he says don't be sinfully angry and bring the devil into your church. Verse 28, he says, Christian, don't steal, maybe presumably from other Christians, don't steal, but work diligently so that you can share with your brothers and sisters. Verses 29 through 31, he says, Don't let unwholesome words come out of your mouth, but grace-giving words. He says, Put away anger, put away slander, put away bitterness, and the like. Very clearly in chapter 4, Paul is telling us how we are and how we are not to relate to one another. But then comes the, the icing on the cake, if you will, and it's found in verse 32. So let's examine it a little bit more closely. Number one, Paul says, Be kind to one another. Friends, we are to be kind to one another in the way that we act. It simply means do what is uh, for the for the good of the other person. Do what benefits them. Be kind to one another. He continues. He says be tender-hearted. It, it, it's a word that speaks to compassion. In other words, when we uh, see our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ in need, physically or emotionally, when they're, when they're hurting, when they're struggling, that we are not to turn the, the, the cold shoulder to them, that we are to care about the needs and the struggles of those in the church. He says, be kind to one another, be, be tender-hearted. And now we come to the part of the text that we'll focus in a little bit more on, because the third exhortation is that we should be forgiving of one another, forgiving each other. I find it interesting. It's, it's as if... It's as if Paul knows that uh, though we are uh, declared saints, that uh, we still have the flesh, and that we still, well, we're not going to get along always, right? That there could be slander in the local church. That there could, could be bitterness, right? That there, there could be lies. There, there, there could be these things. And so it's as if he's saying, you know what? You may not always do these things right. You might actually get hurt by your brothers and sisters in Christ. Friends, did you know that? 
that you might actually get hurt by your brothers and sisters in Christ. Just like uh, members of a family, uh, you sin against one another, right? Well, that happens in the local church too. And so Paul, in his wisdom, under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that we need to be forgiving each other. Forgiving each other. And so then the question becomes, well, um, how is that supposed to happen? How should we forgive one another? Well, he adds this very important phrase. He says, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. In other words, we are to behave with the same grace and forgiveness that uh, with other people that God has acted towards us. Friends, as God has forgiven us, how many of our sins? Some of our sins? All of our sins, right? All of our sins. We, we looked at that last week. And so we too can forgive each and every sin that our brothers and sisters in Christ commit against us. Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And so if that's the principle that we're to work under, well next I want us to turn to Matthew 18 to see the parable. So if you have your Bibles, turn backwards to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We've seen the principle at work in Ephesians 4. And in Matthew 18, we will see the parable, the outworking, if you will, to illustrate the principle. Um, if, if, if Ephesians teaches us how we should forgive, then Matthew 18 uh, tells us why we should forgive. Namely, because God has forgiven us much more then we will ever have to forgive uh, any one of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I want to sort of summarize the teachings here in Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 22. In fact, if you look at verse 21, Peter asks Jesus a question. And so in verse 21, Peter asks Jesus, How many times, Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive a brother or a sister that sins against me? And then do you remember how many times he suggests? How many times, Jesus? Up to how many times? Seven, right? Up to seven times? Now, Peter likely thinks that he's like super spiritual because the rabbis said, well, uh, three times is really all that you need to do. And so he's like upping the ante. He's like, if my brother sins against me seven times? Well, maybe to his surprise, Jesus responds, well, not seven times, but what? 70 times 7, or 77 times, depending upon your translation. But his point, uh, regardless, is very clear. Jesus responds to Peter's question with this, uh, this clear admonition that there is no, uh, no limit, right, to the number or the frequency of how many times we forgive those who sin against us. We are to forgive every single time. And so then, with that, Jesus tells a parable. He tells this parable. It's a, it's a fantastic parable emphasizing why we should forgive without limitation. And so let me summarize. He, 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 he tells the story. He tells the story of a man who owed a king uh, what is equivalent to an unpayable amount. Jesus uses in this parable financial terms that were essentially the largest monetary terms available. It's it's sort of like Jesus is saying, hey, there's a man, and he owed a king a zillion dollars, right? I mean, the the largest monetary term you can think of, that's what Jesus is using. Now, if you want to be strict with the math, actually, I I did a little fun. I I tried to uh, sort of make it equivalent to to today's, uh, today's sort of earnings and stuff. 
My math may not be great, but I'll give it to you anyway. Essentially, the amount would, would, would in my humble estimation, amount to $1 trillion, $80 billion. Take it for what it's worth, right? But it's a big amount, right? It is an amount that, that this servant could never pay back the king. And so the man comes before the king and he says, please don't sell me into slavery. Please don't sell my, my family into slavery. Give me more time. I will pay you back. Could he ever pay the king back? Of course not. He could never do that. He's begging for mercy. And Jesus says that the king looked at him with compassion. He looked at him and had mercy on him. And guess what the king did? He erased the debt. He says, your debt is forgiven. You can go free. Now, now what kind of an impact should that have had on that servant? Freeing, right? Like, what? I can't believe it. I have been forgiven all of this debt. Wow. And so the, the parable continues. Jesus goes on to say that that same man went and found a, a different gentleman who owed him a little bit amount of money. Not nearly what he had been forgiven. In fact, if my math is correct, it would be like $18,000. And so the man had just been forgiven $1 trillion, $80 billion, wiped clean. And the very next thing he does is he goes to this guy who owes him $18,000 and says, pay up now or I'm going to put you in jail. This is shocking, right? This is not the response that the king intended when he forgave that man. And so when the king found out about, about what that, that man did, well, take a look at verse 32. Take a look at verse 32. Then, summoning him, his lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And then here's the point. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you. The point of the, bar- the, the parable is as clear as could be. The basis of our forgiving people, if we are a Christian, if we know Jesus Christ, if we have been forgiven by him, the basis of our forgiving our brother or our sister in Christ is the immense surplus of our own past forgiveness, Right? It's like we owed God $1,080,000,000,000, and God forgave it. So how could we not forgive a brother and sister in Christ who offended us with a merely $18,000 offense, right? It's madness to do that. And so Edwards insightfully writes, That is why it is so important to constantly feast on the love of God as seen at the cross. He says, if we do not profoundly sense our forgiveness, we will have little inclination to freely extend forgiveness towards others. Friends, as we close with one more song here, I just want to ask, do you have trouble forgiving people? Is that something that you struggle with? I think we all struggle with it from time to time. None of us loves to be sinned against. But friends, if you are a Christian, then I would beg and plead, as I beg and plead with my own heart, to ponder the amount of forgiveness that we have in Christ. To ponder that and to allow it to soak into our hearts so that then we can turn and forgive one another. But friends, you can only do that if you know Christ. You can only do that if your sins have been forgiven, right? And so we're going to close with a, a final song. We'll do our offering. 
and then uh, one of our elders will come and pray for us to, to close our time. So let's pray as we transition to our final song. Father, we pray that you would help us to forgive as we have been forgiven for those of us who have experienced the weight of the forgiveness of sins, this glorious experience that you have forgiven all of our sins. How can we not forgive those who sinned against us when you have forgiven us much? But Father, I pray if there's a, a man or a woman, a boy or a girl here, and they know that they haven't had their sin debt forgiven. Lord, I pray now that they would turn to your Son in faith, that they would confess their sin and their helpless estate, and that they would cling to the free gift of eternal life and forgiveness of sins, and that they would receive that gift in repentance and in faith, and that they would, for the first time ever, have the the weight of their sins lifted, and that you would cause them to be born again. We ask it in Jesus' name.